We want our Starbucks baristas to be extremely <laughs> well educated. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we try to figure out just how many postdocs there really are. Hey, there goes another one. Seven postdocs. Ah, ah, ah. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 47. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. And the vampire side of science, apparently. So like my count impression? Dead on. I think that was a... You, you could uh, be in the next Sesame Street episode. Did you watch Sesame Street when of you were growing I, up? Of course I did. Is the count still on Sesame Street? I think he's still around. I don't think uh, Elmo displaced him. Yeah, I just wonder. But I could be wrong. I haven't seen a lot of Sesame Street. You know, my kids, I've tried to get them to watch Sesame Street because it's still around. Yeah. They they get bored by it because it's live action and it doesn't yeah, I flash. Think, yeah, back in the day, it took very little to stimulate us or something. I don't know. Mister Rogers came on the other day, and I think my son fell asleep. So yeah, it's it's just not entertaining. So Dan, summer is upon us, and you know what summer means? <laughs> Mosquitoes. Yeah, it does. It means that. It also means you're gonna roll out a fruit flavored beer for me yeah so we had a party at the house the other night and you know the thing about parties is the dregs of the beer get left behind yeah everybody drinks anything worth drinking yeah so (laughs) the only beer that was left was some Michelob ultra which is not what we're going to drink tonight did you buy the beer did somebody bring that to you no no everybody brought brought some things uh but won't name names no but what we are going to drink is the Shock Top Lemon Shandy. Um, Shock Top makes a lot of wheat beers, right? Yeah, this is a Belgian-style wheat beer, brewed with spices and with natural lemonade flavor. Not natural lemon flavor, but yeah. natural lemonade flavor, say, whatever that say, means. You, you brought this out to me in a glass, and I took a sip, and I was like, oh, Josh made some country time in the kitchen. <laughs> so I believe Shock Top, I was reading a little bit about this. Uh, this is under the Anheuser-Busch umbrella gasp so this was uh brewed in st louis missouri yeah it really tastes like kool-aid it it has no beer flavor to me do you get any beer out of it no i mean i definitely can can get a feel for the the lemonade yeah so if you're a mike's hard lemonade fan or if you really miss zima from the 1990s this might be the beer <laughs> you know for you. i think it's better than that so i think i would i would put it slightly more palatable than mike's hard lemonade for me okay it's uh, a little less sweet you think you know i can imagine if it was a hot summer day and I'm on the back deck, you're sitting on the beach. Yeah. You were dehydrated. It was the only liquid in sight. Uh, you know, sitting in my house, you know, at the computer with you. you, you, you. <laughs> doesn't really feel like the right venue. Let's admit it, Josh. You bought the lemon shandy for yourself. <laughs> and you're just trying to cover. Uh, I've got 10 more in the fridge well, right now. It is a refreshing start to episode 47. So thank you for sharing. Dan, and, I had a homework assignment for you last week. You did, week. and I didn't forget it. You were asking where the word nosh comes from in like in the phrase like I'm gonna go nosh on some veggies. Yeah, or I feel like the newest gluten free pizza hipster restaurant, nosh. Yeah. So I looked it up, of course, and here's the hint for everybody who plays the etymology puzzle. There is an online etymology dictionary. If you haven't figured that out yet, um, 
go there. It's called edamonline.com. Is, is it cheating for people to use that? No, you have we- to use it. That's <laughs> the whole thing. This is where I find the clues and the, the answers. So totally not cheating. Um, and nosh is Yiddish, and it just means nibble. Huh. So you nosh something, you nibble it. Should have figured out it was Yiddish. I didn't didn't pick up on that right away. So when you say I'm going to nosh, that really is appropriate terminology sure it's is, appropriate yeah. usage sure is and it made me laugh a little bit because right under nosh the word josh came up so of course i had to read it and find out where <laughs> josh comes from in terms of to make fun of like oh i was just joshing you um apparently in the very earliest examples it was capitalized it was a proper it was a proper noun um or a proper name and they thought it was the name joshua and the the etymology dictionary says perhaps it was taken as a typical name of an old farmer <laughs> which I just thought was really hilarious. Like, I guess old farmers tell a lot of jokes. I'm not really sure where they got that. And or they're all named Josh. Yeah. So that yeah. is your namesake. Well, hilarious. Dan, I got one more news item that I have to share with you. Have you ever done the Heimlich maneuver? Like in an emergency? Yeah, you're familiar with this technique, right? Yeah, I've seen movies. Yeah, you know, this is the one where you go up behind someone who's choking and you wrap your arms, you bear hug around them and you give them a, a really firm squeeze and the you dislodge the object. Whatever's stuck throat. in their windpipe, yep. Well, so did you know that Dr. Henry Heimlich, the inventor, I guess if you could call it that, of the Heimlich maneuver, it's one, his maneuver. one, did you know he's still alive? I did know that, yeah. Yeah, I didn't well, know. I, I assumed he had died recently, but that's not true. He's still around. No, he is the age of 96, and he lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he invented the Heimlich maneuver in 1974, but there was big news in the Heimlich community this week. There's no Heimlich community. It's <laughs> not like a group of people who practice the Heimlich maneuver for fun. Oh, this is gonna this bl- is not like hot yoga. Oh, this is going to blow your mind. Dr. Heimlich used his maneuver for the first time this week. What do you mean the first time? He had never used it on a person before. He just invented it? Yeah. No way. So apparently, a female resident of his retirement community... Uh, began choking at dinner this week, and without hesitation, Dr. Heimlich this happens? spun around in his chair, got behind her, gave several upward thrusts until the meat she was choking on popped out of her throat. Man, if there is a guy you want to be there when you're choking, it is Dr. Heimlich. He runs up and does the me maneuver. Like, how how amazing is that story? That's pretty incredible. Uh, I feel like... At 96, dude, at that's 96, quite impressive. Yeah, and he, he said that the moment was, was very important to him. For the first time, he said, someone sitting right next to me who was about to die, and I was there for her. Yeah, you kind of hope that he gets to do it many more times, but at the same time, you're like, well, <laughs> well it's yeah, probably not a good idea. I have this theory that Dr. Heimlich's probably going to die next week. Oh, you can't say that. He was just like holding out. He was just waiting, and now that he, he's he crossed that off his list. strength and vitality. If he's giving somebody <laughs> the Heimlich maneuver, he's in good health. Well, there you have it. There's your Heimlich news for the week. Thank you. After, after it was over, Dr. Heimlich said, I, however, just sat there absolutely smiling as big as I could. I hope he meant after he saved her. <laughs> just staring at her while she turns blue. Someone's yeah. finally choking Hooray, next to me. my maneuver. Uh, so anyway, Dan, I thought that was cool. But that's not, that's not all we wanted to talk about this week. I sure hope not. So, Dan, if I asked you, how many postdocs do you think there are in the United States? Oh, I like this. This yeah. is like one of those interview questions. Oh, I, I think this is sort of like, did you ever play those games where you had guess how many m&ms are in the jar yeah and and you like count up the side and along the bottom yeah trying to multiply it out yeah yeah i think it's kind of like that do you know 
how many postdocs there are. Yeah. Um, let's see. There are, how would I start this? I would, I would try and figure out how many universities there are mm. with research programs, and I would figure out how many students, what their research budget is. I'd have to have some other metric that I could actually measure. Yeah. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Why isn't this just a known number? It is, right? Well, it turns out no one really knows how many postdocs there are. In fact, I would probably say even if you asked each of those universities how many postdocs they had, they may not know. You're telling me that they are employing people and they don't know how many they have? Well, so I think this is one of the, the tricky things about being a postdoc. And I think we've talked about this before, but postdocs sort of occupy this no man's land between student and employee. So universities could very easily tell you how many students they have because there's record keeping associated with enrolled students. Right. And they could tell you how many permanent employees they have because they're required to keep those types of records. They even know how many part-time students they have because they know that they're paying for classes. They do, but postdocs tend to be a little more transient and because of their temporary status and lack of benefits, there's not really a lot of record-keeping procedures in place to, to document their numbers. Well, so in 2014, the Boston Globe reported that NIH estimated there are between 37,000 and 68,000 postdocs in the U.S. Okay, that's quite a spread. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a pretty big range. I mean, that's almost 100% <laughs> range from 37,000 to 68,000. However, Dan, if you just think about postdocs in the, in the Boston area alone, this, you know, this came from the Boston Globe, Estimates are there over 9,000 postdocs just in Boston. So, Oh, see, that's going down the path that I was thinking of, where you figure out how many there are in Boston and what the population of Boston is, and then you do the math on the purport. You know, it's not going to work. Well, it? so it turns out the National Postdoc Association, who I imagine would, if anyone was going to be the expert in this, it would be them. Uh, they estimate they're closer to 90,000 postdocs. So the NIH says there's between... 35,000 and 70,000 and the National Postdoc Association says no no actually there's more like 90,000. So so we are from 37,000 to 90,000 now that's our error bars. Yeah, so that's sort of our range, right? So why is this important, I guess? Or is it important to know how many postdocs there are? It seems weird to me that we don't know. I mean, I think it's important to understand. And I would guess that it's really important to understand if you're a postdoc and you're thinking to yourself, like, am I going to have to compete against 37,000 other people for this faculty position or 90,000 people? Yeah, no, that's totally true. And, and that kind of gets to the crux of the problem. And that is individuals who are trying to make career plans and trying to think about whether or not they need to do a postdoc or want to be a postdoc or really are just trying to survey the the career landscape uh, in the biomedical sciences, there's just not a lot of information out there. They're, they're trying to make decisions with very limited information. And so anyway, I think one reason this is important is there's a lot of mixed messages, I think, that are out there dealing with the scientific workforce. So you've probably heard some of these things, Dan. I mean, we've talked about on the show quite a bit. There's this sentiment, certainly among a lot of trainees, that there's a shortage of certain positions out yeah, there. everybody now recognizes they're not going to become a faculty member. And in fact, very few of us will become. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, I think one thing we do know is in the late 90s, early 2000s, around the time we started grad school, the NIH was, was just coming off of this budget doubling. One outcome from this NIH budget doubling was the number of graduate students and postdocs went up quite a bit in the early 2000s. 
And so the other thing we know is the number of faculty positions didn't necessarily increase at the same rate as the trainees, right? So there's, you sort of hold this information on one hand, right? There seems to be the shortage of certain positions that typically postdocs and grad students have tried to go toward. But then on the other hand, you know, you have this, this sort of dialogue that says there's a shortage of scientists in STEM Oh, everybody's looking for more STEM training. We need more science and technology and engineering and math. And we're falling behind China and we're falling behind every other developed country. Yeah. And if only our young people would would turn to science, then we'd be better off. Yeah. And so it's kind of like this weird paradox. Like on one hand, we're hearing we need more people to go into science. But then we're also hearing there aren't enough jobs in science. And so what is true? Uh, The President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology in 2012, they made a call for an additional 1 million science, technology, engineering, and mathematicians. 1 million more. Okay. But they're not saying I want all those people to become postdocs, right? They want them to enter industry and do other things as well? I mean, who knows? So they, okay, they just they, want more of them. And actually, I should, I should specify, they wanted more STEM trainees, a million more STEM oh, they trainees. Said trainees. They did yeah. say trainees. Um, and so Francis Collins, our friend at the NIH, he wrote... We want our Starbucks baristas to be extremely <laughs> well-educated. Hey, you know, you probably mix a better latte if yeah. you have a better... You Measure more the temperature in Celsius the like I do. There's, Come on, people. <laughs> weigh those beans on your scale. Um so, so Francis Collins wrote in 2013, there's no definitive evidence that PhD production exceeds current employment opportunities. Um, and I hey, guess... That's a guy we would think to trust, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, director of the NIH, although we also just said the NIH doesn't really have a great handle on... So he's not wrong. There is no evidence, <laughs> well, right? And that's right. Technically, Dr. Collins is correct that there's no definitive evidence that PhD production exceeds current employment opportunities because they're actually is no data at all. So I guess he's right on a technicality. Great. So I think what we're left with, Dan, is we either need more scientists or less scientists or maybe different scientists, but we don't really know. There's no evidence that drinking shop top doesn't cause brain damage. (laughs) That makes me feel better. Okay. Uh, Yeah, Dan, so I think the fact that this number is up for debate at all really really points to the fact that we need better accounting practices in the biomedical workforce at universities, at research institutes. There are a lot of conversations that are going on at trainees, at faculty level, at the NIH level, is there's, there's these two competing issues. And as scientists, what would we normally do if we had a hypothesis? We would collect data. And I would. That brings me to to this paper that I came across. And some of this discussion has has come from this. There's this paper called A Call for Transparency in Tracking Student and Postdoc Career Outcomes. This was in Molecular Biology of the Cell in 2015. We'll post this. And this was actually written up by a group of postdocs from the Boston area. And I guess a couple years ago, they hosted this Future of Research Symposium. Again, this was organized by Boston area postdocs. And really all they wanted to do was provide a forum for science trainees to get together and discuss some of the most pressing issues that were facing them and try to come up with some solutions. And one of the big issues they came up with, which is what they wrote about in this article, was, hey, we don't even know how the heck many postdocs there are and what 
the postdocs that are here, what are they doing? What are their outcomes? Yeah, it seems like before you decide to invest more money in producing a thing, you should find out how many of that thing you have, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so some of the things they want, Dan, is they want better institutional tracking of the number of postdocs and really the number of grad students too, although I think there probably are better numbers there. Um, but not just knowing how many postdocs there are, but what are what are the jobs that these postdocs are actually going into? And that's important because, you know, they're bringing these people to be trainees, but they have an obligation to help these trainees transition to careers and jobs. And if you don't even know how many people there are, you can't really prepare them for a job market. Um, and you can't prepare a job market that can absorb them all because you just don't have a clue about how many people you're going to release. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think about this was like medical school or something, right? And let's say you had... Very tightly controlled on numbers. Yeah. Uh, but let's say there was a medical school you were thinking about applying to and you knew that that school only half of the students actually became doctors. You probably wouldn't go to that school. Yep. Yeah, we're churning out dentists at such a rate that everybody's a dentist. Like people are standing on the street <laughs> trying to pull your teeth just because they need the money. Or yeah, you know, we're churning out, you know, people with medical degrees, but none of them are actually becoming doctors, right? So yeah, that's... You, you would think twice about that that training. And as a student, you would look at that job market before you entered school and you'd say, look, this isn't for me. You know, I want to be on American Idol, but the competition is fierce and I'm not going to be the guy that gets there. So um, it doesn't make sense for me to put my life on this path if I'm not going to have a career at the end of it. So yeah, so I think the first thing is better tracking of the number of postdocs at the institutions. But again, the, the, the second thing is the more transparent recording of their outcomes. So when a postdoc leaves, now we don't really have good record keeping of where they go. And, and this is a problem more broadly. I was writing a grant a couple of years ago, and this was an educational grant um, that had to do with undergraduates at, at my institution. And so <laughs> I had to, one of the things I had to report was where do the undergraduates in this certain department, where do they go when they graduate? So I was like, okay, that's a pretty straightforward question. Uh, so I asked people in the department, I was like, hey, do you have some data on where your undergrads go? Nope. Did you Facebook stalk them then? Well, I mean, that's all you're left to do. Yeah, of and course. That's literally LinkedIn, what we had to do. Yeah, cyber stalking. But there was no institutional knowledge of where these students went. And you want to make it more complicated? Where do they go for their first job? Let alone their second or third or however many jobs people get. Yeah, down and road. you know, I don't necessarily think it's an institution's responsibility to follow their alumni for the rest of their lives. But at least knowing where are they going directly from your institution. See, I'm going to disagree with you on that one because a lot of people do a postdoc right after grad school because they haven't thought about what they want to do next. And then after that postdoc, they go do something totally different. So um, to me, your next step is not really the career you are choosing. It might be your second step or your third or your fifth. I don't know. I, I, I get that it gets harder and it gets more confounding, but I think a lot of people take a default step into a, an academic research lab and their real kind of choice is something different. Well, I think that's why it's important to know where the postdocs go because theoretically at least, right, the postdoc, the transition after your postdoc should be into your first job. 
first non-training position. I guess. I would think so. I guess we don't know. But actually, Dan, uh, next week we're going to find out. Oh, I'm, I can't wait. Yeah, so... Do you have actually answers to these questions? I think so. I actually have a another paper I've come across where an institution has actually done some of this work and figured out who their postdocs are, where they've gone, and the results are fascinating. So we're going we're gonna to take a look at that next week. I'll try and hang tight. All right, Josh, you ready for the etymology puzzle? I'm ready. And the puzzle last week was, this black dung beetle was considered sacred by the ancient Egyptians. Gems cut in a beetle shape are known by the same name. Did you have a guess? I do have a guess. Lay it, lay it on me. I'm going to go with scarab. You are correct. Now, are you a jewelry fan or an ancient Egypt fan? Uh, did you ever see that movie, The Mummy? Yeah. With, uh, Brendan, Brendan Fraser. 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 I don't know how you say his name. And, and they, they had all the scarabs. I remember the beetles uh, were like yes, crawling the, all over the place. Were they were they attacking people? Because they're really, they just eat dung. Yeah, and the, of course, in the movie, they were yeah, like crawling, like crawling in his ears and things. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so scarab comes from the uh, originally the Greek karabos, which is beetle or crayfish. So um, wildly fascinating. Our winner this week is Audra from UNC in the chemistry department. And I really enjoyed the fact that uh, Audra said this is an entomology etymology. Ooh. Oh, I see what nice. you did there. Yeah. So uh, we'll be sending Audra the... Uh, Amazon gift card. And this is not our first entomology etymology. Couldn't be. I think we talked about a moth one time. Oh, yeah. We talk about bugs pretty much constantly here. Yeah. Um, so the reason I was working on the scarab puzzle was because I was actually more interested in this other route. Um, oh, so, so that was the setup. Well, that was kind of the setup. So this is another dung-related puzzle. Are you ready? All right. This is, <laughs> the dung trilogy is coming. Oh, I could do a trilogy. You want yeah, me to? Okay. I do. I'll, yeah. I'll work on it. Okay. This dung is hard as a rock. In fact, it's a fossil. I'll read the clue one more time. This dung is hard as a rock. In fact, it's a fossil. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. Make sure you go to the online etymology dictionary if you need help this week. That is right. And if you need to get something off Amazon can go to our website hellophd.com and disable your ad blocker and you can click In just 12 easy steps you're halfway there <laughs> and if you click through the little amazon banner on the side of our website it gives us a little kickback and helps us to buy the beer people are doing it we have very kind listeners yes thank you so much um you know what is really interesting about this discussion of the number of postdocs in the world josh what's that I feel like this determines the size of our potential audience. So we don't know whether we should have 37,000 postdocs listening or 90,000 postdocs listening. All I know is I hope that you will go tell a postdoc near you about the show. That's right. And then count how many there are. So does that mean we hope there are more? Because that's more I potential think so. Well, I think this is what the postdoc, what is the name of that postdoc organization you mentioned? I think they want there to be more too. Yeah, that's probably true. So if you've got something that you think would be interesting for us to talk about on the show, we would love to hear it. Email us, podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or send us a Facebook message. All right, Josh, excellent show, and I'm excited about next week. It's going to be great. Make sure you tune back in. And I'm going to polish off this uh, lemonade-flavored shandy. Maybe next week we can just have some lemonade. <laughs> Bye, Dan. See you next week.
mo postdocs mo problems. That's probably true too.